The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Exploring our oneness with spirit and each other. Unity Online Radio. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, where spirituality and recovery meet with Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D. Now, here's your host, Reverend Anna Schaus. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, where we support your spiritual growth in recovery. My name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your host. Thank you for listening with us today. I'm so glad that you joined us, um, and thank you so much also for your comments on our Spirit of Recovery Facebook page. Thank you for liking us, and thank you for responding to what we're doing here on Spirit of Recovery. And uh, I want to thank you also for letting your friends, the people in your recovery and unity communities, your other spiritual communities, your family, your friends, know about us here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. It's uh, fantastic to have the opportunity to broadcast on the topic of recovery and spirituality here. And thank you also for your emails and for letting me know what's happening in your world, in your recovery, in your spirituality walk. And thank you for letting me know that the guests that we have on here are making a difference for you, that they're touching your heart, inspiring you, giving you some new ideas, opening up the whole concept of recovery as a lifelong wonderful process. Every week we talk about topics that are important to the recovery community with guests who are down to earth, knowledgeable and innovative. My guests are either people who are in recovery themselves or who work with or write for recovering people or often all the above. And the guests are always bringing you practical information that you can use and lively discussions that get you thinking. You know that you can listen to us here on Spirit of Recovery in a variety of ways. You can listen live via your computer, via your smart device. You can also listen to archives uh, on demand anytime you want. You can listen to the great archives that we've got. Just go to unityonlineradio.org slash program slash Spirit of Recovery. The spirit of recovery is a welcoming place, and I really want people to know that, to know that um, whatever your situation, you are welcome here, certainly as a listener and as a participant. If you've got a question or a comment on the topic for my guests, we'd be delighted to hear from you. So whether you're a person that's in recovery from any kind of an addiction, perhaps you are a family member that's in your own recovery as a family member or the family member or friend of someone that's in active addiction and maybe neither you nor they are in recovery or maybe you're just curious about the whole process of recovery. I'm glad you're listening, glad you're here. Again, you're welcome to email or phone in a comment or a question. I'm just uh, glad for you to participate. 
Again, my name is Anna Schaus. I'm your Spirit of Recovery host. I'm a unity minister and also an addictions counselor. Um, in addition, I'm a person who has in my own circle of love and friendship many people with the disease of addiction. And this month of May 2015, I'm celebrating 30 years of um, getting going in my process as a family member, my healing and my recovery as a family member. And I'm grateful for those people in my life who were in active addiction, who were catalysts that got me going and got me on an active path of personal growth and spiritual development, for they are surely were gifts in my life. And ever since then, my walk has been an integration of unity and recovery principles, and that walk keeps richly transforming my life, and it keeps me growing in ever deeper and ever richer ways. So again, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to share these ideas with you to bring you great guests and to hear what you're experiencing in your spirituality and recovery walk. I want to let you know also that if you are feeling blessed by what you're hearing here on Spirit of Recovery and any of the other wonderful programs on Unity Online Radio, you can make a financial difference. You can help support this radio station financially if you would choose to do that. If you want to, you can text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone. You can make a one-time contribution or a recurring contribution, and all of the financial support goes to support Unity Online Radio. So today... Our topic is recovery is for families. And, uh, you know, addiction affects every member of a family. It can affect uh, the adult spouse or partner all the way down to the youngest child. And the facts are it can really even affect the family dog or cat or fish. It really does. It's a far-reaching, interesting process. So as addiction can affect every member of that family, also recovery has an effect on every member of the family. And so the healing, the hope, and the help that recovery brings is for families. And uh, when families uh, transform their relationships by using recovery tools, it gives every person dignity and self-respect and new possibilities for a fulfilling life. And my guest today is a person who has extensive experience with working with families and with children on a broad range of uh, issues that are all related one way or the other to addiction and family dynamics. My guest is Elizabeth Devine. Elizabeth um, is an MED and a licensed professional counselor supervisor. She's the director of treatment services at the Council on Recovery Austin, Texas, and is also known as Austin Recovery. That organization's uh, in a in a wonderful transition and uh, coming together with some organization, and they're now called the Council on Recovery. You can also find them at Austin Recovery. And uh, Elizabeth's going to be sharing with us practical perspectives on how family recovery creates healthy living for every person. She is, uh, as I said, a licensed professional counselor supervisor. She has, um, in addition to her therapeutic experience in a domestic violence, drug and alcohol dependency treatment, and private practice, she worked for many years as the coordinator of a community program that facilitated education and support to school-age children who were affected by loved ones' addiction to drugs or alcohol. 
and Elizabeth has facilitated hundreds of psychoeducational groups that involve role play, art, writing, and games to empower the participants striving to cope with family addiction. And she has spoken nationally on issues related to counseling children, codependency, domestic violence, family dynamics, addiction, and recovery. So, Elizabeth, welcome to Spirit of Recovery. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So glad you're here. So, you know, a lot of times we hear the phrase, addiction is a family illness or a family disease. What does that mean? Well, you know, I I think it has to go back to the the principle of of addiction being a disease at all. Uh, And and then it kind of expands out to the family disease concept. And, you know, uh, some people have qualms about calling addiction a disease, but I, I think that the... The symptoms of addiction that that lend itself to that concept are the fact that, you know, the symptoms of significant craving, of of the chronic need for care uh, to really attempt to to achieve recovery um, is something that's kind of ongoing in the same way that you have ongoing attention and care given to diabetes or heart disease or something along those lines. But it extends to the family, uh, and we call it a family disease, because it is um, something that impacts every aspect of the, the relationship. Uh, you know, it, it is impossible to love someone with an addiction and not be greatly affected by it. Uh, it is a crazy-making disorder uh, for everybody uh, who is attached to that person who's also suffering. And it's a complicated dynamic, for sure. Mm-hmm. What are some of the ways that family members are affected when when there's somebody in that family that's in active addiction? You know, I think there's a lot of variables. It depends on your role in the family, and it depends on, I think, how long you've been dealing with another person's addiction. Um, You know, I believe that for spouses specifically, um, sometimes parents, um, you know, and I can speak to, to a number of them. So let's say that you're a parent of an adult child or a um, maybe an older minor who's starting to experiment, there is both a, there's a sense of responsibility to maintain that person's safety, to guide them, to help them grow into the adult they're meant to be, but there is something that is significantly getting in the way, even sabotaging those efforts, you know, to be a parent. Um, as a spouse, addiction clearly and understandably gets in the way of, of truly having a partnership with that person. And I think that the and then with children, I mean, there's there's a, a number of things to speak to about the experience that children go through. And I think that the emotions we frequently see from family members range from fear, sadness, concern, to outright anger, resentment, rage. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, it literally can take on all spectrums and varying all, all across the board. You know, in, in one minute, you can feel so heartbroken for that person. And in the next minute, be completely enraged. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of dynamics at play. You, you try to help, and then you try to do tough love, and then you try to separate, and then you try to chase them down. It's, it's, under, it's an understatement to say it's crazy-making. <laughs> I mean, it, it really, it's, it's hard. It's such a challenge. Let me ask you this. I don't know if I can phrase it so it makes any sense. But what is it that makes it so crazy-making about addiction mm-hmm. than, say, about diabetes. And anytime there's a chronic illness, there's stress in the family. I don't want to diminish that. But there of seems course. to be a, a bit of a different quality. What is it about addiction that, that makes everybody think they're losing their marbles? <laughs> right. 
And I think that's a, that's a good way to put it is, you know, what is the quality of addiction that makes it so distinct and, and so difficult for family members? I think one of the primary aspects of it is denial um, that makes it so hard. Um, and, I, and that's not to say this doesn't exist with people who have diabetes or have heart disease who say, oh, I can continue to live this way and it's not going to have some big repercussions. But how much more so um, for the addict or the alcoholic to say, it, it, one of the aspects for many people who attempt to help people find recovery is that you have to admit you have a problem and you're, we're really not going to get anywhere until then. And I think really coming to terms with the fact that there is a problem oftentimes means that you have to acknowledge this isn't an issue of will. This isn't something that you, there's a relinquishing of control. There's a humility that's involved that is really, really hard for any of us to do, let alone the addict or the alcoholic. And so until, so a person is constantly not only dealing with their cravings and their need for that substance, but they're also oftentimes sabotaging others' attempts to help them by saying, I don't have a problem. I can quit when I want to, or it's not that bad, or you guys are making this all about my drinking and that's not what it is, or you're making it about my drugs and that's not it. Um, there, it almost, it oftentimes feels like the person who's struggling with the addiction is literally working against everybody in, you know, in their lives. Um, and sometimes what people are trying to do to help is helping, and sometimes to some degree it, it, it's not. <laughs> it's really not, you know, um, but I understand why they do it. Uh, the denial is a part of it that's, I think, so challenging because if we can all admit there is a problem, then you're at least making some ground on being able to do something with it. Um, and it's, I know I'm, I'm not even being all that succinct about it because it is such a complex issue. There's a denial, but on top of that, there is this sense of actively working against acceptance that there is that problem, which frequently means that attempts to help are shoved away or pushed away or turned into something that they weren't intended to be. And um, that's, a high, that's a highly challenging experience for everybody involved. Right. You know, one thing that uh, comes to mind, and I see this too when I, um, I saw it in my own life and I see it when I uh, work with people, is that something that might be a rational and reasonable way to help when everybody's in a somewhat reasonable mode when applied to a situation of active addiction, either doesn't work or, or actually becomes a part of the problem. Absolutely. Can you yeah, speak to that? Why does that happen? What's that about? Well, right. And it's, I think what happens is the person that has the addiction looks like the same person that you married or that you were raising or that you've known for many, many years. But in a lot of ways, it's not. You know, that addiction takes over. Uh, that person's priorities, it takes over that person's ability to really um, rationalize through certain things. That the, Even um, decisions are made that are, so ultimately when a person gets hijacked in a way that all of a sudden the drugs and the alcohol become the most important thing, oftentimes they'll find themselves doing things that ethically and morally they, they know they don't agree with, but they need that, that drug or that alcohol so greatly. And on top of that then comes guilt, comes shame, comes a number of negative feelings attached to that. And so now there's even greater motivation to drink or to use, to cover up that guilt, to cover up that shame. And so when, when families are coming to these, these 
people who are struggling with their addiction who, of course, you know, nobody takes that first hit and hopes they become addicted. You know, no one, mm-hmm. no one walks into this happily. You know, everybody thinks they're going to be able to use or to drink and, and that it's all going to be okay, but unfortunately it does capture some. And so they find themselves in the cycle of first I'm going to use to feel good, now I'm going to use to just get through my day, and now I'm going to continue to use to hide from the guilt, from the shame, from everything else. And so when family members are coming to the addict or alcoholic and saying, don't you know how much we love you? Can't you see how much you're hurting us? How can you continue to act in this way? Or pushing, pushing on those areas that are sensitive that the, clients ex- or the, the person has felt some wounds around and they're being attacked back, you know, and what's ending up happening is that the very things that they're using to try to evoke the motivation to stop, unfortunately, sometimes evoke more guilt and shame in the client, or in the, I'm sorry, I work with a lot of clients, but in the addict or the alcoholic, which makes them want to use, which is not to say they're making that person use. It's just that it's not as helpful as it's intended to be. Right. What are some things that family members can do if there's someone that's in active addiction in their family? What is what are some of the use again, I know there's no right one right answer, but what are some things that might be helpful? Well, it, I, the first answer that comes to mind is pretty counterintuitive, I think, for a lot of families, which is that you've got to get help for yourself. Um, because the effort and the energy gets thrown at the person who is addicted. Um, there is a concern for their safety. There's a concern for the fact they might lose their job. There's a concern for what might happen, you know, medically or legally for that person. And your first response is to move towards that, to move towards the problem. And the reality is that nothing is going to get better until you, you take that systemic approach and back up and look at the problem on the whole because it's affecting the entire family. It's one of those things to where... Um, you know, God forbid, if I were, if my daughter were to be diagnosed with cancer, you know, or something along those lines, that's where I have to pull back and I've got to go to the doctors and I've got to say, what can I do to get her help? What do I need to do to make sure that I'm eating and that I'm sleeping so that I can be present for her so that I can make great decisions related to her care? That is not the first thing that comes to mind. You know, that's not the first step that we think to do, but it's the most important thing to do. And the fact of the matter is, I've said it before, this is such a complicated problem, addiction is. And to just try to jump in with all of the resources that we have as a spouse or as a parent or as a brother or a sister or a friend don't typically work when you're dealing with addiction. Um, I think there's a, a common belief for most people out there that if I love you enough, you're going to get better. If I continue to show up for you, if I continue to come to your rescue, if I continue to process with you the pain you're going through, eventually we're going to get through this and come through the other, the other side. And the reality is that's kind of true, but the love oftentimes doesn't look like it normally does. It doesn't show up in the same way whenever you're dealing with somebody with an addiction. The love that you have to show to that family member oftentimes looks like towing some pretty hard lines, putting some pretty firm boundaries in place not enabling that person, which is extremely challenging. Um, when I say enable... Hold on to that thought. It's time for our break. Okay. And we'll be right back yeah, and we'll talk do. some more about what love looks like in that situation. Thanks. Stay with us. We'll be right back. If Unity Online Radio has helped you grow spiritually through programs like this one, 
please consider supporting this online radio programming. Visit www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. Thank you for helping us continue to serve as the voice of an awakening world. Reverend Paulette Pipe's voice has been called mesmerizing, the sound of spirit expressing in soothing honey tones. If you're one of the loyal listeners who tune in each week for her program, Touching the Stillness, you already know the power of her meditations. If her programs leave you wanting more, purchase one or both of her meditation CDs, Touching the Stillness, her first CD, and the newly released Resting in Stillness. This latest CD combines Paulette's alchemic voice with an original score by pianist Kelly Hunt and will transport you to a place of divine peace. Enliven your meditations with Reverend Paulette Pipe as your guide and take her soothing voice and peaceful presence with you wherever you go. Get your copy today. Go to www.unity.org and then click on Shop. That's www.unity.org and click on Shop at the top of the page. listening to Spirit of Recovery with Reverend Anna Schaus and her guest. If you have a question or comment or experience with today's topic that you'd like to share, call us now at 888-55-UNITY. That's 888-558-6489. Call now or email us at spiritofrecovery at unityonlineradio.org. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. If you're just joining us, my name is Anna Schaus. I'm your host, and our topic today is Recovery is for Families. And we're talking about what happens for families when they get into a recovery process for themselves and how important that is and that uh, how uplifting it can be for a family to begin to use recovery tools and uh, can make a huge difference in the mem- life of every member of that family. My guest is Elizabeth Devine, and Elizabeth um, is a, a master's in education. She's a licensed professor professional counselor supervisor and she is the director of treatment services at the council on recovery in austin texas also known at least temporarily now as austin recovery and elizabeth is sharing with us some wonderful practical perspectives on how family recovery creates healthy living for each person and she has extensive experience working with families and with children and we're going to hear a lot about that about her work with children and what children need in this second portion of our program today but before I get back to my conversation with Elizabeth, I invite you to join me in a moment of connecting, making that conscious contact with your higher power in the Serenity Minute. So I invite you to relax, to be aware of your breath, to feel that relaxation as it moves down through the crown of your head and all the way through your body temple, and share with me this constructive idea. I am in harmony with myself. I am in harmony with my higher power. And I am in harmony with the people in my life. I am in harmony with myself. 
I am in harmony with my higher power. I am in harmony with the people in my life. And now we take a moment in the quiet. for joining me in the Serenity Minute and I trust that that was an opportunity for you to relax to share a constructive idea and to make that conscious contact with your higher power so thank you for joining me in that and now I'm back to my conversation with Elizabeth Devine again the Director of Treatment Services at the Council on Recovery in Austin, Texas and um, she's going to continue to share with us about the family recovery. So, Elizabeth, before the break, um, you were telling us some practical ideas about families and that love looks different maybe when you're uh, dealing with someone, they're working with someone, you got someone in your family that you love that's got active addiction and what love really looks like. And it, it, it may look like more like setting boundaries and so forth. Um, what about with for the children? If there's a person in that family, maybe their sibling or maybe a parent or maybe even a grandparent or an extended other extended family member, what does it look like for them? What does recovery for a child look like in a in a family with addiction going on? Yeah, and you know, I think a lot of times what I can speak to related to how to help children uh, growing up in a home where somebody is affected by addiction, for children who love somebody who's affected by addiction, the principles that I, I would say about them apply to teenagers, apply to spouses, to parents, to everyone, truly. And what I think children need, regardless of whether or not the person in their life actually achieves recovery, is they need a safe place, a sense of community that says, I'm not alone. So many of these children are living under the stigma, under the secrecy, under the shame. And shame shame kills anybody's efforts at recovery, whether that's the addict, the alcoholic, the family members, adult family members, teenagers, there has to be someone who says, you don't have to keep this a secret. That doesn't mean we broadcast it. Some things will be personal, but let's find some safe people, some safe places to share this with, you know, and that can be somebody within their own family. That could be, you know, a school counselor. That could be, they even have preteen groups. Um, There's programs. Um, available kind of uh, across the nation um, around helping, you know, we have one in our Houston program around supporting children um, and helping them realize they're not alone. So that sense of community and helping them fight the stigma around that and and processing those feelings, that all of their feelings are okay. Um, A lot of times children, and I'm going to say this applies to everybody in the family, need permission to be angry with the addict or the alcoholic. But there's such a sense of loyalty to that person. There's this sense of to admit I'm angry with them admit means something bad about them, you know? And so what we would do in our, in our work with children was essentially say, let's, let's take this addiction and let's personalize it. Let's write a letter to it. Let's talk to it. Let's draw a picture about it. And let's put that over here. Let's set that on a shelf. And we can talk all about this addiction. And what that would do is give the child permission to hate that addiction, to hate what it's done to their family, 
and also continue to love and have a commitment to that parent, you know, who their identity is so greatly tied to. And we all need permission to do that, to, to have those feelings and to be honest about them. Um, you know, and that's only one aspect of it. The other thing specifically for children is that they need an aspect, they need a, the ability to be safe. And what that means is they need to know what to do in a situation where they're in a car with somebody who's drinking um, or if they find themselves in a situation where somebody isn't, isn't acting appropriately or they find themselves in a dangerous situation. Not only do they need to know to call somebody, they need to know who that person is, how to do that, and they also, some of them even have to back up as far as to realize when they are in a bad situation. If they've lived in an environment where the norm is to be around those who are using or drinking, um, sometimes they need a little bit of education around their rights as children to be safe and what that means and what that looks like, um, and then identifying people to call for help. And the thing about children of, of addicts or alcoholics is that sometimes there's a great deal of pride in knowing in getting to kind of be the adult a lot of the time and being the responsible one and being problem-solving. That's what's so cool about these kids a lot of times is they're so resourceful. They're great at solving problems. They're strong. They're mature. Um, but what we know they need is the ability to be a kid, you know, and that, that means that that's their number one job. They can't be healthy adults unless they first had an opportunity to really just be a child. And what that means is that when they find themselves in an adult situation or having an adult problem, they need an adult. And even though they could probably handle it, they shouldn't have to. And starting to kind of retrain them on reaching out for help. And these are the kids who grow up a lot of times and look like they've got it all together. These might be the kids in school who look like they have it all together. Um, but they are in great need because they are internally suffering a great deal. Sometimes to a degree I don't think they even know until much later down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some um, of the approaches that you use? You've, you've mentioned one that you help children separate the disease from the person, and that's a, boy, that's mm-hmm. a tough distinction for adults yeah. and for anybody. What are some other uh, approaches that you use with children to help them recover? Well, I think a piece of, like, literally a, a in speaking to their safety, I mean, I think it's really about creating safety plans with children, too. You know, um, I've, I've dealt with a lot of parents who are um, struggling with that their child maybe has to go for visitation or something along those lines with somebody who's drinking or using and helping them identify when A, B, or C happens. Here's the number you're going to call. Here's the safe word to use um, when you call me so that maybe that doesn't send up flares. Here's Here's what you can do. Here's where you can go. Here's the number to 911. You know, um, for some children, they didn't have a safe person to call. And we would give them the, the number to the boys in Girlstown uh, 24-hour hotline where they could just get a crisis counselor. Maybe they were afraid to call the police or something like that. That's one aspect in the, really, in the way of safety. But another piece of it is really um, the messages they need to hear is they need a general – when you say that – the depersonalization of, of the addiction, I think a part of that is helping them understand what addiction is. You know, that this is, there is something inside of a person that is telling them they need this drug or alcohol, that they might even die if they don't have it. Um, and that's how we know that something's not right. You know, they're dealing with cravings more than any of us have ever dealt with related to chocolate or, or anything like that. And, and that is the thing that is driving them to act in this way. And so often children will feel as though they've done something to exacerbate the addiction or to make it worse or to cause something to happen. 
Uh, and they need to hear that this is not their fault. This is not this would this problem would exist even if they had never been born, and that it is also not their responsibility to fix it. You know, this is not up to them to try to intervene or make better. Um, what they have to do, and it's the same message I said earlier before the break, is they have to figure out how to help take care of themselves, um, which usually involves asking for help. Mm-hmm. What is, again, certainly preserving uh, the children's privacy and, and anonymity and so forth, but what are some of the things that you've heard children say, uh, either about addiction or about insights that they're gaining as they engage in a recovery process? You know, the, the, the ideal, which I, I've seen a few children get to, and I even heard at the very beginning of your program, um, was I've heard some who've said, I'm realizing this isn't my fault. This isn't my job to fix this. And what, for some, that's a, that's a source of panic and grief because they realize, oh, my God, there's nothing I can do to fix this. But for other children, there's a sense of relief that says, okay, this isn't up to me. You know, I need to make choices for myself. I need to take, you know, I need to make good choices for myself. I need to communicate what I need. I need to communicate my feelings. And I can do that. I can manage that. You know, um, there, was, there was a sense of relief. For the, at, the, at the highest level, I have seen some children express almost gratitude for, I'm grateful for what I've been through because get something that I can tell my other friends don't have. And I'll tell you that in working with children who've grown up in homes like this, and I'm not trying to paint a, uh, a flippant picture here, um, but I truly do believe in children's capacity for resiliency. I believe in the, the capacity for resiliency across the board, but there was a, you know, back in the social sciences, you know, about 50 years ago or even much further past that was there was this identification of high-risk children, and these are children who are coming out of divorced homes, out of substance abuse homes, out of domestic violence, and the social sciences was doing this giant study around these negative outcomes for these, these families and for these children. But there was a woman named Emmy Warner who recognized that there were some children coming out of those same situations who were successful, who were happy, who were living very, very great lives as adults. And so she said, what, what's going on with these kids? What's happening here? And she was able to identify a number of protective factors, a number of things that cultivate resiliency, which I believe is in every single child. And a large part of that is was having somebody who believed in them, who was consistent with them, who showed up for them, and, and having a sense of, of separation from the problems in their family of saying, I, I understand you guys are kind of messed up, but I'm not. <laughs> you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's hope for me. Um, there's something going on. Another piece of it was having a belief in uh, a spiritual sense about them, you know, that says there's a purpose in all of this. There is someone out there or something out there. There is something higher than me that cares about what I'm experiencing right now. And this doesn't have to be who I'll become. You know, it involves active participation in knowing that they have something to contribute to society despite where they've come from or what they've gone through. And those things can cultivate such a sense of, of resiliency within them that they, there's a strength in these children. And the way that looks is there is a, they will fight for the underdog. They know what's important. They live a life of gratitude, knowing what they came from and what they hope to achieve. And then when they achieve it, this sense of, of gratitude. And I can't think of any greater gift for any of us to have than to have a sense of 
I know what I came from and I'm grateful for where I am now. Um, and that problem solving and the, the resourcefulness, there is a lot of hope for children coming out of situations like this. Um, it's just a matter of cultivating it, truthfully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me, um, in sometimes when parents are in recovery and, and their children, you know, were children when they were in, when the parent was in active addiction, Sometimes it can trigger in parents in recovery a whole lot of guilt, shame, and fear about, uh-oh, mm-hmm. what happened to my kids? And that can be a, a barrier for sometimes for that adult, you know, having the quality of recovery they want or, or maybe sometimes, you know, it's, it, it. so how do you address that with parents that are in recovery and dealing with, okay, the kids were around? How do you deal with that? Oh, I, and my heart goes out to them, truly. Um, uh-huh. And I... I mean, it's it's such a challenge, and a, and a part of it is recovery without children is hard. You know, I mean, that's a challenging thing to pull off. Then when you come into recovery and you start feeling the feelings and you start having the memories and you start dealing with the the consequences of prior behavior, um, you know, it's just trigger after trigger after trigger, and that's why it is so incredibly important that parents who are attempting recovery or, or, you know, walking the road of recovery, stay plugged into their support system. Whether they have children or not, that's extraordinarily important. But it is incredibly important that they have that sponsor on speed dial. And some, you know, some have even recommended find a sponsor who has children, you know, who knows what it's like to try to navigate that. Um, the other piece of it, though, and just some practical tips are a lot of times it's about not not doing what you think, <laughs> which is uh, I think that a lot of times they're dealing with a lot of guilt and with a lot of shame for what 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 has happened, and I think that there has to be an acknowledgement of yes that did happen, and and unfortunately I think for a lot of of people who are coming into recovery there's some things that they won't remember happened, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there might be a tendency to kind of engage in that old addict or alcoholic behavior and say it didn't happen that way you're making that up it wasn't that bad. And, and the, the fact of the matter is there has to be this ability to let people kind of stand in their own truth, whether that was their spouse or their, their parent or their, their children, and say, that was what your experience was. And, you know, I know I wasn't there for you in the way that I wanted to be, um, and I'm so sorry that I hurt you. And then do everything they can in their power to do differently moving forward. Um, but they've got to give that person the space to have their, their experiences and their feelings and then be accountable to that as best as they can. But what that doesn't look like um, is buying them all kinds of things, being overly permissive with the children to say, you know, there's such guilt and there's such shame, let me make up for it by being above and beyond what I ever was, you know. At the same time, it's not swinging the other way that says, you know, I haven't been a parent to you. So now I'm going to show up in a giant way and all of a sudden rule the roost. When a lot of times what's happened for children when their parent um, has been addicted is they are running the household. You know, whether they really are or not, that's how they feel. And so all of a sudden somebody gets sober and comes in and wants to lay down all these rules and all these standards for how things are going to be. And there has to be both a respect and an appreciation for what that child had been through before. And then a collaborative effort on what it's going to turn into now as, as that parent moves into recovery um, that says, you know, I, I'm grateful for how things were before. I understand that was hard for you back then. Let's talk about how it's going to look now. And I think you could say the same when it comes to working with spouses or with parents that says we've got to find a new normal here. 
And that is not often something people can do too easily on their own. And that is, again, why it is so important that everybody is getting the help they need. And I hear a lot of resistance from family members, and they'll say, you know, they're, they're the one with the problem. You know, don't, don't suck me into therapy. Don't suck me into having to go to meetings. And that's just really not the way to look at it. it it's the fact that everyone needs support going through this um, because it is so hard. And even for those who aren't committed to maybe staying with that person in their journey in recovery through their addiction, perhaps they're considering divorce or they're considering moving away from their participation in that person's life, there's still some fallout. And oftentimes everybody needs some help and some support in navigating their feelings uh, around this situation for sure. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's time for our break. And uh When we come back, we're going to talk some more about what healthy families look like and how to navigate that change because it's incredible change when people start moving into recovery. And um, so my guest is Elizabeth Devine. She's the Director of Treatment Services at Austin Recovery, or also known as the Council on Recovery in Austin, Texas. And we're talking about recovery is for families. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Available, you pray the free prayer app from Silent Unity. For more than a century, people from all over the world and all walks of life have turned to Silent Unity. With you pray, our confidential prayer support is easy and convenient to access. With you pray, you can send your prayer directly to Silent Unity. You pray also includes affirmations you can share with family and friends, plus audio meditations for your prayer time. For more about the free you pray app and links to download. Visit silentunity.org slash app. That's silentunity.org slash app. Does music open your heart and bring you peace and joy? Experience the sacredness of sound with Ramdesh Kaur as we travel the world of mantra, kundalini yoga, and devotional music. Join us for a journey into spirit, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Spirit Voyage Radio with Ramdesh. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Listening to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, with your host, Reverend Anna Schaus, PhD. And now, here's Anna. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. My name is Anna Schaus. I'm your host. 
And we're talking today about Recovery is for Families. And my guest is Elizabeth Devine, who is the Director of Treatment Services for the Council on Recovery, also known as Austin Recovery, here in Austin, Texas. And she is a licensed professional counselor supervisor and has extensive experience working with families and uh, with children in the recovery process and many of those issues that are related to that. So, um, Elizabeth, before our break here, you were talking with us about how important it is for every family member to get support um, as they enter the recovery process, no matter what the externals look like, but everybody needs support. Could you tell us just a few uh, resources that people could access just via the web or something? And we, the listeners, of course, are from a variety of locations, but if a family member wanted to get some help, where could they start? You know, um, the go-to, I, I think, uh, uh, nationwide uh, in many countries, of course, is um, Al-Anon is a, an organization specifically designed to provide support to loved ones of addicts and alcoholics. Um, there's also things uh, called like Families Anonymous. Um, there is a website called uh, For the Adult Children of Alcoholics, and that it's ACOA.org. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we ourselves have a, a center for recovery uh, and work very hard to provide referrals as much as we possibly can, whether that's in Texas or otherwise, um, at austinrecovery.org, and we would be able to help anybody try to find some support uh, however we possibly could. So, um, But I, you can always reach out to local um, groups like Al-Anon and Families Anonymous, you know, and there's a variety of different uh treatment communities as well for whether that's there's a narcotics anonymous there is cocaine anonymous there's um overeaters anonymous and and the thing about it is that whether you identify with a 12-step mode of recovery or not um there's there's other 12-step focused things um based on whatever your substance may be but it's really about the power of community about finding that like-mindedness and people who are sharing in the struggle and sharing in the hope of getting better um, and so, you know, whether you're a fan of 12 Steps or not, it's about finding that community. Um, so that's, that's my great. Deal. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Very, very helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. What does a recovering family look like that's different from a family that was being affected in the active addiction phase? How is it different? Well, you know, people will say that for the people who are struggling in a, a family that, that's sick, with the addiction, the rules of those family of that family system is typically don't talk, don't trust, and don't feel. And so, really, a healthy family does the opposite. You know, they have to learn how to talk. They have to learn how to communicate, identify what's going on, and talk about it in a way that that um, is done in love. Um, they also need to learn how to trust, and part of that means. Sometimes that means going to great lengths, at least for a period of time, to regain trust. You know, I think sometimes the addict or the alcoholic who's coming into recovery is like, you know, I'm a grown adult. I shouldn't have to yada, 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 yada. And it's maybe they shouldn't, you know. But the reality is if they're committed to regaining trust, then that entails, you know, showing up in a way. That, that means that maybe you do hand in your car keys when you come in the house. That means that maybe... You know, you do call in a little more frequently than you usually would. By the same token, there has to be a regain in trust on the part of the family members as well, which means that when when the addict or the alcoholic 
show some vulnerability. They're not met with distrust. They're not met with disdain. They're not met with an expectation for failure. They're not met with overwhelming anger or rage, which again goes back to why people have to, everybody has to do work to change the family system. And finally, you know, they have to learn how to feel, which means figuring out healthy ways for the addict or alcoholic to deal with the anger that they're going to experience, to deal with the boredom a lot of times that people who are new in recovery start to experience, to deal with the frustrations of dealing with the consequences from their addiction. That's hard. Each day is hard. That's why it's a day at a time. And at the same time, the family members have to learn how to feel too. And I think one of the hardest aspects of getting better is starting to get into that place of letting your guard down and getting vulnerable. And there have been many reasons along the way to not go there. Um, and so there has to kind of be this incremental work towards getting to that place so that there can then be true intimacy, true growth, true truth, I, I suppose, in the family. Um, so, yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's what health looks like. Right. Yeah, that sounds great. And as you were talking, I just it just came to mind for me that a resource for teenagers is Alateen, which is a part of yes, Al-Anon. So that yeah. just... Thought about that, and there are there are a few lucky cities that have even a preteen in place um, mm-hmm. that can uh, work with children, school age children, um, and there are a few there are a few programs. I know that we have one, um, we have a, a, a few here in Texas, but we also have some nationwide that can provide a, a lot of treatment centers will have family programming. Um, for somebody who goes into residential treatment or into um, their outpatient work, and they'll do like a three- or four-day family programming. It's not unusual, but there is also family programming for children. Um, There's not a ton of them, but they are available, and it might be worth a a Google search to try to find some of those. Great. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, As we're talking, one thing that uh, comes to mind as well is that Oftentimes, people in recovery, whether it's the family members and or the person with the addiction, uh, once they get in recovery or maybe they knew it ahead of time, they start to realize that they grew up in families where there was active addiction. Mm-hmm. So do. How, does, how does that <laughs> affect the recovery process? Um, <laughs> the answer that comes to mind is it affects it a lot. You know, yes. I, I think that what ends up happening a lot of times, you know, I know we haven't talked a great deal about codependency. And, and there's a lot of aspects and facets to codependency, but maybe at the, at the root of it all is that a person starts to really define who they are and their role in this world around responding to another person who is struggling with addiction. And sometimes it's not only addiction. Sometimes it's a mental illness. Sometimes it's extreme poverty in the family. Sometimes it is just things that plague families that really complicate their ability to really show up in a healthy way. And what happens is children fall into these roles. And, you know, you might hear this, uh, children falling into a role of um, there's the lost child, um, for example, and that's the kid who just kind of kind of goes into themselves and, and kind of goes into fantasy and dreamlike behavior. And the child just kind of don't, you don't notice, you know, and that's fine for the family usually because there's a whole lot else going on, and so that kid at least can just kind of take care of themselves over there. Um, there's the mascot or the, the clown, you know, the one who keeps everybody laughing and keeps covering over the tears. Um, there's the, the rebel. And uh, there's such a value in the, the kid who's the rebel or the scapegoat in the family because a lot of times what's happening with that child is they are wearing the symptoms of the family. 
and they are yelling for attention. You know, they are telling their teachers. They are not, they're not explicitly doing it, but they're telling everybody around them there's something wrong. There's something wrong in the family. And they are the ones who are kind of broadcasting that to the world and sometimes can recruit help if people will respond to it. They oftentimes need their own help as well. And then you've got that, that hero child, that perfectionist child, and they, they bring a sense of um, respect to the family. They're the ones that get thrown out there who oftentimes the family hides behind and says, we can't be that bad. So-and-so is getting straight A's and is the, you know, the president of their class. You know? And all of them bring such gifts to the family, and all of them are sh- struggling and suffering in their own way and are at risk in their own way. And what happens is that they carry these roles as a child in that family, and then they, they grow into the adults who carry these roles. And so, for example, let's take, for example, the hero child, the kid who says, my family is a mess, but I'm going to hide the shame of the family. I'm going to get out there. I'm going to be a perfectionist. I'm going to keep up with the Joneses. I'm going to show people that we're fine and that we're okay. Um, I'm going to follow the rules, and I'm going to do great by myself because I'm nothing like my rebel brother, you know. Oftentimes what can happen is that's the child who grows up who has the potential to be extraordinarily successful but also carries a great deal of loneliness and is burdened and oftentimes struggles with the the woes that come with perfectionism Um, and then could end up being the type of adult who either marries an addict or alcoholic because they know how to deal with them um, and or they start using themselves to keep up with the demands that they feel are on them, you know, to, to maintain what they what they feel is so important and so valuable. They're at risk of becoming addicts or alcoholics themselves. We know that children growing up in homes with substance abuse are three to four times more likely to develop, develop problems themselves as well. So all of them are at risk in their own way. It's just that we, we learn certain roles when our, when our family dynamic isn't healthy, and we carry that with us into adulthood if there isn't someone who intervenes or if there isn't something outside of ourselves usually that intervenes so that we think and believe in a different way about what healthy families and healthy behavior and healthy coping should and could look like. Right. Yeah. So when you're talking about that, what what it makes me think about um, as we're kind of unfortunately nearing the end of our time on our program today, but I just want to bring this up and ask you quickly what how you would respond to this is that it's almost sounding like a big part of recovery is finding the internal life is uh dealing with you know the feelings as you've spoken about instead of just i mean of course we want to live life and participate but but from a a a more of an inner place and that seems like that's the spirituality and that that's part of the whole recovery so as adults when we're in recovery that whole thing of finding my inner life no matter what it was that happened to me as a kid i got to deal with it how would you see that yeah. You know, I think I think that it serves a good purpose, that guard coming up and keeping our head down and plowing through the muck and everything else is kind of our, our go-to response whenever we find ourselves in fear and in crisis. But what we know is that there can't be growth, there can't be health, there can't be hope unless we're willing to kind of set those things aside. You know, and there's a time and there's a place for them. But if that becomes our, our way of living, that's no way to live. And so, yes, to achieve true recovery, it does mean kind of going within and also looking outside of ourselves at the exact same time to really achieve any sort of, of progress um, in living happy, healthy lives and having that for our families as well. 
Thank you so much, Elizabeth. You have shared uh, wonderful thoughts with us and, and um, just just so lovely, lovingly and wonderfully addressed the, the complexity of addiction and, and uh, the importance of every member in, in the family taking good care of themselves. Thank you for being my guest, and thank you so much for the work that you're doing uh, for recovery. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Listeners, thanks for being with us today. Um, have a wonderful week. Be blessed and uh, know that your higher power is there with you, your higher power as you understand it. We'll be back next week on Spirit of Recovery. Thank you for listening to Spirit of Recovery with Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D., and her guests. Join Anna and her guests live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central Time for down-to-earth ideas about keeping spirituality at the heart of your recovery. This program is brought to you in part by Soul Matters Ministry, committed to bringing light to the soul. Online at soulmatters-spiritworks.org. Have you heard about Dr. Tom Shepard's new program on Unity Online Radio? Tom Shepard, isn't he the Unity Magazine question and answer guy? Right. Well, they've actually turned him loose with a radio show, and I hear it's going to be pretty edgy. Edgy? Like what? Guest panelists and students from Unity Institute and Seminary, topics like abortion, gay marriage, war and peace, environmental issues, Islamic fundamentalism, universal health care, religion and politics, current events. Yeah, but they'll all be Unity people, right? Dr. Tom and his students will talk about the hard questions facing all people today, sometimes joined by rabbis, priests, liberal and conservative ministers, Buddhist monks, Baha'is, Hindus. And he's going to interview them on the program? Better. He's going to introduce a controversial topic and let students and special guests go for it. This could get explosive. Does he have guys in black shirts standing by to break up the fights? If I know Dr. Tom, he will keep it both friendly and spirited. Whoa, I gotta hear this. When and where? The program is called Let's Talk About It, and it's on every Thursday at 9 a.m. Central Time, only on Unity Online Radio. So let's talk about it. Definitely, let's.
Things may happen around you. Things may happen to you. But the only things that really count are the things that happen in you. This meditative moment from Reverend Eric Butterworth is brought to you by Unity. I'm Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.